the Psalms in Psalm 9, verses 7 to 10. And in verse 10, it says this, Those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. The names of God are not arbitrary. They're very much in keeping with and a reflection of his character and his attributes. Let me pray with you for a moment. Father, as we look into your word now, we invite you here by your spirit. We know you're here already, but you like to be invited. You like to work with malleable people, people that are open to what you have for them. And so, Lord, if I may do that, I'm going to pray on each of us, whether we're um, in the building here or in the gym or online, may we have an openness to what you would have for us today. May you, as we've been singing, be exalted in that. And so we pray for these things. We pray and thank you for your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I'd like to mention something you already know. Life can be tough. In fact, life often is tough. We all have a list of times and circumstances in our life in which we thought, this could be the end of me. At least it feels like it. And we all have that kind of list. Let me share just a very partial list of some of those moments in my life. When I was six years old, I almost died from a ruptured appendix. In fact, the doctor said, not sure why he didn't die. When Debbie was pregnant with our first child, I was in grad school, going to grad school full time. It still needed to work to support the family. She was about to give birth. But I didn't have a job, and I couldn't find a job, even though I looked diligently. But I finally found a job, and God gave me a great job right at the moment the bank account was empty. It was the time when our second child, Sean, came this close to drowning. Barely made it. The year of waiting, as we waited for the phone to ring, and it seemed like it was never going to ring. Another phone call that came at another point in life where we were sure God was going to have them say yes, and they said no. That meeting when things were said that were untrue, but hurt all the way to the core. Picking up my abandoned mother-in-law and having her come to live with us. Being there just a few months ago and watching my mom die. Being my dad process that. Life can be tough. And every one of you, to one degree or another, has your own list. Here's a promise from Scripture. God sees, God hears, and God calls you by name. God sees... God hears, and God calls you by name. If you have your Bible, turn with me, or your device if you prefer to use that. Turn with me to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 16. And we're going to move through this incredible story. 
and we're going to see the God who sees, the God who hears, the God who knows your name. Genesis chapter 16, I'll just read the first six verses to sort of set the scene here. Now Sarai, later her name becomes Sarah, Abram, whose name later becomes Abraham. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my man's maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai took his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms and now she knows she's pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. So we know that Hagar is an Egyptian young woman. All, in all likelihood, this harkens back just a few chapters in Scripture to Genesis chapter 12. Abram goes to Egypt because there's a famine in the Middle East, and he goes there because he's heard there's food he can get. And during that time, he undertakes several missteps Several sinful choices, both he and Sarai, and later Pharaoh missteps as well. And I won't go into all the background of that, it's complicated. But at the end of all these wrong choices, Abram actually ends up receiving sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, and male and female servants. And in all likelihood, Hagar was one of those servants. And so she was property. Her life was not her own. She existed. Her purpose in life, as they understood it, was to serve the family that owned her. And this is one of the reasons we know that the Bible is absolutely true. Because it doesn't try to cover up the ugly stuff from history. It just says, this is... This is historical fact. It doesn't try to smooth these things over for North American sensibilities in the year 2021. The family she served was right in the midst of this incredible pressure-filled, tension-filled time of waiting for a long-term promise to be fulfilled that, that would have been miraculous. And they're waiting and waiting and waiting for this to happen. And she's right in the middle of the tension of all this. And they're waiting. And nothing reveals our character in life like waiting. Nothing reveals it like waiting. And I've waited a lot in my life. And sometimes I've said out loud to Debbie or others, I've just said, why haven't I learned this stuff better? I thought I learned this the last time I had to wait some of these lessons, but I seem to have to learn them over and over again. And so 10 years earlier, Abram was given a promise by God that he would become the father of a great nation. Didn't have any children, 
at that point. But 10 years earlier, he'd been promised, you will become the father of a great nation. And then in chapter 15 and chapter 18, we're actually, it's sort of amplified a bit. And he reiterates this promise to Abram. And he says, not only will you be the father of a great nation, but all the nations of the world will be blessed through Abram. And if you know history, you know that this is literally true. As the years passed, no heir has been born. No heir, no nation. And this causes incredible stress and tension in the household of Abram and Sarai. Now, in the culture in that part of the world at that time in history, if you had no children, you were shamed for this. You were ridiculed for this. And so a plan was conceived by Sarai. And the plan that she came up was totally culturally acceptable at that time. This was something that many people did. But the plan short-circuited God's plan dramatically. He said, I'm going to do this, but you're going to need to wait. And he reminded him in chapter 15, you're going to need to wait. And yet they decided to go with an alternate plan. And so she gives her handmaiden or maidservant Hagar to her husband to be a type of forced surrogate on her behalf. And the idea is that when the child is born, the child is taken away from the maidservant and becomes the child of Abraham and Sarai and is the new heir. So not by choice, Hagar is in this position. She's completely powerless, and she's alone. Now, I'm assuming you're not in this exact position, but I'm also assuming that most people here can in one way or another relate to this idea of being powerless in some part of your life. Let's listen to her story and see what happens. Hagar becomes pregnant, but we're going to discover that the outcome is quite different than the outcome Sarai and Abram had anticipated, because they would not wait for God to do his promise in his way on his timeline, and instead, as I said, short-circuited that promise. And whenever we implement a plan, instead our own plan instead of God's plan, it doesn't just get messy, it often gets downright ugly. And again, if you know anything about history, you know that short-circuiting of God's plan has caused incredible problems in the world. Incredible problems to this very day. And if you're heading down the path in life and you're about to make some decisions and deep in your heart, you know you have substituted your plan for God's plan. And you know this doesn't line up with Scripture or whatever the case may be. And at this moment, you are feeling the nudge of God because he does that, the nudge of God about the fact you're trying to go your own way rather than God's way. I caution you, you had better listen to this nudge from God. And so Hagar is pregnant, 
with the heir apparent. She feels a surge of power in her life, and she begins, perhaps for the first time in her life, and she begins to let Sarah know this, and she despises Sarah because of how she's been treated. And again, perhaps for the first time in life, she felt like, and rightly so, that her life had some meaning. You know, whenever there's a conflict in the household, maybe you've noticed this in your household, whenever there's a conflict in your household, it's really interesting to sit back and watch how each character reacts in the household to the conflict. So what does Abraham do? Abraham likes to avoid conflict, and he advocates his role, and he pushes the problem off on Sarah. He willingly went into Sarah's Sarah's, uh, um, plan, but when things blow up and start to turn ugly, he does a quick back step out of the room and says to her, you handle it. Sarai becomes resentful and treats Hagar harshly. It's the exact same Hebrew word that's used 400 years later in history when the children of Israel are slaves in the land of Egypt. And if you know that story, we know that the Egyptian slave drivers treated them harshly, wailed on them all the time, abuse them, all that stuff. Exact same word used here. This is how Sarai is treating Hagar. And so Abram avoids conflict and clams up. Sarah steps into conflict and blows up. And we often default to one of these two in the household when there's tension. We either clam up and run away or we blow up and we make, what's the expression I used to use years ago? Speak when you're angry and you'll make the best speech you'll ever regret. So here's Hagar. She is sexually used. She's afraid. She's powerless. She's uncared for. She's alone and unseen. So she runs. Now the story turns. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. So they always identified geographic areas because this stuff literally happened. So they identify geographic areas. So we know, yeah, this is history playing out here. And he said to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where are Have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. And again, if you know history, you know this is absolutely true. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son, and you shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. Again, very true. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. 
You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. It was there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave him the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. In the midst of so much wrong and so much pain, in a situation that's seemingly hopeless, like she's running, and, and I've been to this part of the world, man. You're, you're taking your life literally in your hands. Like, there's no water there to drink. She is totally alone. Hopeless situation. He's running. And likely, again, you can't relate to her exact situation, but we've all had times when we've come to the end of ourselves and we're not sure where to turn and we're in a dark place and we feel lost and unseen. Scripture is telling us and reminding us right here, at that moment, God is with you. Circumstances may not outwardly change and may not immediately change, but he is the God who sees you. My hope is that you would be like Hagar here, that you will say, you are the God who sees me. I don't totally understand what's going on, but you are the God who sees me. The God who sees me, the God who hears me, the God who knows my name. Now, verse 7 seems kind of strange, kind of weird when you first read it, because it says, the angel of the Lord found Hagar at this particular place. And, and every, anybody that knows Bible, or they're thinking to themselves, well, I thought that Scripture taught that God knows everything. I thought that Scripture taught that God is all present. I thought that God sees everything, and he knows where we are at any given moment of any given day. I thought scripture taught that God never goes around the corner is surprised by what he sees there. I thought it was impossible to play hide and seek with God because he knows exactly where I am and he sees everything. This is absolutely true. The fact is, is we're never out of God's sight. We are never lost as far as location goes. He sees and he hears. So how does this work? What is being said here is being lost is a condition, not a location. Being lost is a condition, not a location. And so to be lost in this context and in the midst of this story is separated from God in the sense of you're in the midst of despair, perhaps by disobedience, perhaps by sinful choices, perhaps by doubt, perhaps because of hurtful things others have done to you, because of a lack of faith, there's this sense of being lost. And it's speaking more about the condition of our heart in terms of proximity to God, not his ability to see me. And when we are feeling like Hagar, it's easy to assume that God is blind it's easy to assume that God is busy somewhere else. It's easy to assume that God doesn't hear what I'm saying and he's blind to my pain. 
But actually, the reality is, is that the senses of God are on heightened alert. And he is much more aware of what's going on in your situation in your life than you are. Like we sang earlier, he's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's always been, he's eternal, he sees all, he knows all. He knows what's going on in your life way more than you do. And so he sees you, he hears you, and he calls you, as the text says, he calls you by name. It's kind of like if you have children and... uh, your kid's out in a crowd somewhere and your kid calls out to you. And I think ladies are especially attuned to this. They seem to have this incredible ability this way. The kid's out in the crowd somewhere, calls out to you, and the parent hears this kid, recognizes the voice, sees the kid, and can pick the kid out in the crowd because they're familiar with that kid. They know that kid. They've heard that kid many, many times in their life. They've seen that kid, and that kid is important to them. And it's like that with us and God. So imagine Hagar (coughs) runs thinks she has no choice, totally powerless, completely alone, feeling unseen, is being harshly abused by Sarai, wondering how she's going to survive because there's nothing to drink or very limited resources when it comes to what to drink. And all of a sudden in verse 8, the angel of the Lord calls her by name about how sweet that would have been. Someone knows my name. I'm not alone. Somebody cares about me. Somebody knows me. Somebody sees me. And in your Hagar-like experience, I remind you, God sees you, he hears you, He knows your name. He knows the state of your heart. And he's looking at your heart. That's what's meant by him looking to find you. And so maybe you're not at this moment in a Hagar-type experience, but you probably have someone who's important in your life who's in a Hagar-type experience right now. And God has this way of helping us locate ourselves in the midst of this. And he often does it by asking us questions. And this is what he does in verse 8. He says to Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? He knows the answer to these questions. But he asks these questions quite deliberately. Now, if you're in a Hagar-type experience in life, Or maybe you're just here or you're online watching, you're in the gym and you're not even sure that God exists. Maybe you're just seeking God and maybe you're in this Hagar-type experience or you're just checking God out, whatever the case may be, and you have a boatload of questions. That's wonderful. Questions are good. God loves questions. Give your questions to God. He's got broad shoulders. He can answer them. But as you ask them, and I encourage you to ask them, I would also equally encourage you to listen carefully for the questions God is asking you. Because sometimes in life, 
And this may not be the case for you, but sometimes in life, we use questions as a reason to delay a decision we don't want to have to make. Or we use them as a reason not to do something. And I would suggest that often in life, we get much further by listening to the questions that God has for us. So he says to her, where are you coming from, Hagar? And what he's inviting her to do and inviting us to do is to look back at our history. And in that history, there's going to be some regrets and there's going to be some pain that took place in her past, either because of choices we've made or things that others have done to us. And unless, he's saying, unless we receive and accept God's offer to be forgiven for those things, if they're things that we chose to do, to be cleansed of those things, to be forgiven and redeemed by those things from those hopeless situations, there's going to be trouble. Because those things just hang on to us if we don't deal with them. He's not encouraging us to look back so he can keep us in some kind of a shame cycle or some condemnation cycle. No, his goal is that we will be encouraged to honestly look to him for help and to address these things. Because he understands, because he's the beginning and the end, because he's all-powerful, that it's only in him that these things can truly be broken in our life. And that only he can break the power of our past. And so part of the God who sees everything about you is he sees your past. And he says, oh, Scott, I don't want you to be held hostage to your past. This is at the heart of what Jesus did by going to the cross for you. He says, "I'm, I'm willing to take your place and to break the chains of your past sinful choices, Scott, your past hurts that others have perpetrated on you, where you, it wasn't your fault, they just did it to you, but you, you have the scars to show from what they did. And when he asks you that question, where are you coming from? He's really asking you, he's saying, have you Have you brought to him in total transparency your past and allowed him to deal with it? Have you asked for forgiveness where you have made sinful choices? Have you brought that bad series of decisions and owned them? Have you asked him to redeem you from those things, to atone for those things, or for the wrong things that were done to you uh, that were not your fault, but it hurt you and it scarred you? Have you asked him to heal that hurt? And so in asking that question, God is saying, hey, guess what, man? You thought you were doing all this and no one else knows about it? I saw it all because I'm the God who sees And have you come to a place in your life where you're ready to have an honest conversation with me? An honest conversation. And when we do, he offers to heal it, he offers to forgive it, he offers to cleanse it. And here's the really cool thing about God, unlike people, he never brings it up again. It's not that he forgets. He's not capable of forgetting anything because he's all-knowing. But he never brings it up again. 
It's been dealt with. Jesus atoned for it. It's been paid for, and he's redeemed you. And so he sees, he hears, he loves you, he knows your name, and he wants to help. But then he asks another question. He says, uh, Hagar, where are you going? Where have you come from? Where are you going? And when he asks the second question, he's saying, all right, I want to step into the current reality of your life. And I love you enough to step into the current reality of your life and what you're assuming is going to be coming in the days to come. Are you interested, Hagar, in the future I have for you? But here's the thing, Hagar. To receive that future, you have to submit to him first. You know, when I read verse 9, when it says to her, the angel of the Lord says, hey, Hagar, I want you to go back to your mistress. It bothers me. That verse really troubles me. I'm thinking, this woman is being treated horribly. Horribly. And he wants her to go back. And so it troubles me when I read the first part of verse 9. Now, the thing that gives me significant comfort is in the verses to come, he says to Sarah, go back and, and, and submit. And I'm comforted by the idea that, that God says, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide for you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to look after you. And I'm going to bless you incredibly and build great nations through you. It raises a very significant point. Our number one need in tough times is not to be free of whatever it is that seems to be hassling us. This is the common narrative we hear. Just take this pill, just do this, just do this, and all this tough stuff will fade away. That's most important. Now, what's most important and what Scripture always teaches is the need to submit to God first. This is absolutely, and we don't like to hear that. We're masters of our own destiny. This is at the heart of relationship with God. Will I say yes to him? Will I humble myself? Will I submit to him? Return and face Sarai, the cause of your problem. But Hagar, I'm going to take care of you. But as you go, you need to work on your attitude a little bit, Hagar, as you go, no matter how justified it might have seemed. Sarai was way off the tracks, was way wrong. But here's the thing, Hagar, running away from your problems rarely solve them. Face them and accept my help. This woman is incredible. <laughs> She's got so much courage. There's so much to admire in Hagar. The biblical way is always to submit first to God and he will provide. And quite honestly, the circumstances may not immediately change, but he will provide and he will bless. And, and he will often make us wait. Sometimes it's next week. Sometimes it's next month. Sometimes it's 10 years from now. Sometimes it might be in heaven. And her life is incredibly hard, but in the end... She submitted. 
And that brought God's great blessing into her life. So I ask you, what's God saying to you? You might want to pull some godly people around you and share with them what's going on if you're in a Hagar type thing. Invite them to pray with you, to listen to God with you, to hold you accountable. But often, what do we often do when we go through tough times? We withdraw. That's usually the pattern, right? Or if we're doing things we know we shouldn't do, rather than get godly men or women to help us and pray with us and support us, we withdraw. And we think our secret is safe. But God sees, God hears, and God knows our name. The walk back to Abram, think how hard that was. A few weeks ago, we talked about Abraham going up onto the mountain for three days, three days journey with his son, how hard that walk was. This was a hard walk too. As she walked back, we don't know how far it was, as she walked back to her mistress. But it was a pathway of blessing. She had incredible courage and a humble heart. El Roy, the God who sees you. The name that she gives to God here comes in verses 10 and 11 there, comes out of her personal experience. Let me ask you, is God personal to you? This comes right out of her personal experience. Is God personal to you? Have I had an encounter with God that's so personal that it shapes my relationship with him? Now, I know we're not really in the business of giving names to God, but what name could I give God? I think that's a cool question to ask yourself. What name could I give God? Based on his character, based on his attributes, based on what he does in my life. I thought about this for a while, and uh, I came up with a couple for me. I won't tell you the whole backstory, but just a couple of names of God. I would, I would say for me, he's the God who called me, the God who directed me. That would be one of the names. There's a whole story around that that has evolved all over my life. The God who called me. And another name would be the God who sustained me. The God who sustains. What about you? I would encourage you. This would be a helpful and a fruitful exercise to spend some time saying, if I could give a name to God, what name would you give him? Based as an indicator of your personal experience with him. He is the God who sees you. He is the God who hears your name. He is the God who calls you by name.